0: It's the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Uh, Good morning, Fred. Joining us in this edition is Anthony Townsend, president and founder of Star City Group, a strategic foresight and urban planning studio and author of Ghost Road, Beyond the Driverless Car. Thanks for jumping on board, Anthony. I'm excited to be here.
1: Anthony, really great having you on board.
0: Thank you. You authored a piece on Medium recently with the eye-catching headline, the 100-year history of self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. Among the things you talk about was a General Motors exhibit at the 1939 World's Fair. I, I know you weren't there, but <laughs> tell us about that.
1: I was there, though, probably. No, uh, right. no, I guess I wasn't there either. <laughs> I wish I would have been there.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think this is um, uh, the exhibit was called Futurama. Uh, it was designed by Norman Bel Geddes, who was a um, sort of the father of streamlining, I guess, in American design. Um, kind of a well-known figure um, who helped really set the t- tone for industrial design in the U.S. going into the uh, the post-war boom. And, um, you know, this is 1939, uh, New York, tale of the Depression. Um, country was actually still in sort of the second trough of the Depression. Um, and, uh, you know, GM was laying out what they thought was a vision of, of, metropolitan America based on automobile, um, which is something that I think a story of that event that has been, you know, millions of people went to this exhibit It filled an entire hall. There was a whole motorized kind of ride that went around it. Um, and if you go look at it, there's some great films online. You know, the city they were depicting kind of looks like Houston or looks like Atlanta. It's a city of, of you know, freeways, high speed freeways and tall glass and concrete towers and, and sort of low density settlement, um, although very high density commercial centers, um, you know, it's kind of like what we built, um, and, uh, you know, this was the vision, as I write about in the book, that sort of, you know, service people went off to war with and, and came back and, you know, fully expected, um, to, to be delivered to them, and, and in many ways it it was, took a generation, but, There was a little sort of regarded piece of that vision, which was that um, the the highways uh, depicted in that exhibit were were fully automated. Um, And it was a vision of automation, sort of mainframe automation, a kind of centrally coordinated like ground traffic control system uh, run by a, a metropolitan governmental authority dispatching vehicles via radio control and guiding them down the highways, Um, which at the time uh, was, you know, made sense given the technologies of the day um, and, you know, the sort of um, planning regimes that we we had in place and the the trust in government competence to to deliver uh, an efficient large-scale system like that. and, uh, you know, I think it's just kind of fascinating how far we have come from, from that vision to uh, the, the prevailing vision for uh, automated transportation, automated vehicles today, which is that all of the intelligence <clears throat> is boiled down and loaded onto the vehicle. And in many ways, it's a vision that's very hostile to government getting involved at all uh, in the rollout uh, of, that, of that system. Um, even though uh, you know it actually takes advantage of of lots of public infrastructures or publicly funded infrastructures to 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 do its work, um, but you know I th- I think the reason I put it in there um, was that it's it's just such a, a pivotal moment. It's also the 30s is the time when you start seeing all kinds of depictions of automated vehicles in science fiction, um, not just exploring the exciting stuff but also exploring some of the really scary scenarios. Um, what today we would call, you know, like a, a cyber, a cyber attack, um, you know, and, and the whole automated vehicle fleet going renegade and killing thousands of people, um, you know, scenarios that we're we're contemplating now as we think about cybersecurity regimes for automation. So I think it's it's it fascinated me, you know, just how long these visions have have been in our culture, and not just in our culture, but like in in the engineering world. Uh, We've been thinking about this stuff for a very, very long time. Um, And it's just now that like the need and and the wherewithal to do it has, has kind of come to fruition.
0: It kind of took maybe Google to come along to wake everybody up and say, Hey, this stuff is real. Let's get going.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, this October is going to be 10 year anniversary of the unveiling uh, of of the Google self-driving car project. And, you know, I think as, as you both know, um, It really, um, that came, God, like 12, 18 months after the global financial crisis. I don't know, I I would guess GM and and Chrysler were still probably at some stage of their bankruptcy saga. Um, That was scary. That was a bit of an existential moment, I think, for the auto industry to see Google uh, come in uh, with such a radically different vision of, what automation could be, how it would be built, what the sort of fundamental assumptions about Uh, performance and safety and risk. I I think that was one of the most fascinating things to me um, when I went in and started doing some digging, you know, around um, the sort of incremental history of vehicle automation in in the auto industry, Um, just how, deliberately um it had been pushed kind of under the hood so to speak, and sort of i wouldn't say hidden from the consumer but wrapped up in um a very technical esoteric kind of jargon um that was almost in in, in in ways you know meant to black box it uh and to um to um not not push too far too fast um or overpromise to consumers, um, and to be really incremental about the about the development of the technology, and then Google comes along with <laughs> just the total opposite. We're going to promise the world. We're going <clears> to <throat> pitch it in really plain language. You know, basically the same way we've sold search and mobile phones. We're not going to call it ABS and EBS and DSC and all these crazy acronyms. You know, we're basically not gonna talk about it like engineers. Um, and, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna push it so fast and aggressively and try and leap all the way to the end of the roadmap. Um, and, you know, just seeing the amount of anxiety, um, the amount of a sort of um, hasty um, and, and sometimes misguided or misdirected investment um, that that triggered throughout the industry, throughout the auto and the, the rest of the tech world, um, you know, it's just really been fascinating. And here we are 10 years later, you know, and a lot of the, the fundamental promises of, of, you know, that Google announcement have both been delivered, mostly only by, by Google <laughs> and, and, and not delivered uh, in many ways by the rest of the industry. Yet we've had all this other interesting stuff happen. Um, and so that's what I was really trying to get at in the book is like, it's not so much about, oh, you know, automated vehicles were um, sort of snake oil and this was all just a big, a big uh, puff of hot air, um, but really rather that the story has changed. And it's actually quite a sort of familiar story for, for emerging technologies that the end goal you know, 10 years later, maybe has turned out to not be what we thought it was, that the real place this gets traction maybe isn't in passenger vehicles, um, or sort of automobiles, but it's in um, personal electric vehicles, or it's in really big commercial vehicles and transit vehicles, or it's not in passenger vehicles, but in, in freight vehicles. Um, and, you uh, I think like that's the kind of shift to me that's just really fascinating because it it creates such great opportunities for for cities to to think okay this has now really created an enormous toolkit and opened the possibilities to shape this technology in a way that aligns with what cities have been trying to do around mobility which is get away from the car as being the only solution for every single problem. So I think you know in many ways like This is just a really promising development um, for cities to to build a better mobility future.
0: One of the things we talk about uh, a lot on the podcast and a big thrust of uh, of Alan's work is providing mobility for all and having, more recently we're talking about, having the people who are going to use this technology, use these new mobility systems, have them involved now at the outset in designing this telling the engineers, the Googles and, and, and Ubers and, and more, what they want, what they need, how, how it can really serve their needs. Yeah, I, I, I agree.
2: I was just speaking earlier today with um, a couple of uh, designers at a, one of the big car rental companies, and they're trying to understand you know, during the pandemic, we have millions of cars sitting idle. Is there a way that we connect these to people who are struggling to access the things that they need? Um, you know, partly as a um, act of corporate social responsibility, but partly like, is there a business opportunity there as well? And um, you
0: mean you mean using their rental vehicles to provide yeah. transportation to people who need it?
2: Yeah, and and you know, I said the only way you're going to answer that question is like. Field work. Like you need to go out and find out like really closely st- studying what the challenges are that, that people are facing, um, you know, what the pre-existing challenges were like food desert, lack of banking, um, you know, um, uh, other, other, other challenges, um, lack of transit access, whatever it is. Um, And then the new challenges that they're facing in a pandemic environment, like the car they used to borrow, they may not be able to because it was a senior citizen's car and they don't wanna expose that person to to potential COVID threat, right? Um, And so trust networks that used to provide mobility may be breaking down in ways. Then, only then you can start to get to the question of like, can the company help and can technology potentially be Uh, A part of of building the solution, whether it's automation or app or something else. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, I I think where you've seen success, particularly around automation has been um, You know, companies that are that are doing that Um, Waymo has certainly done a ton of that. Um, They really took a surprisingly, but I think in the end effective cautious approach to taking the safety uh, supervisor out of the car. Um, I think it took them almost two years to, to get to that point. Um, and it's pretty clear that there's still a lot of oversight happening remotely and that that'll continue to be there for, for a long time. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of um, really, uh, you know, Closely observing what people want out the technology and what their hopes and fears are that I think will provide um you know the insights that are needed to just help fit what i think people are inherently skeptical about um automation uh to to sort of find ways to insert it into their lives in a way that they're comfortable with
1: i think in in watching this for all the, this for a very long time. Um, To me, I I sort of, I go back five years before uh, uh, Waymo to the DARPA challenges, which is to me what really changed the mindset because I, I think I was involved in automated highway studies, as I like to say, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. And in all those studies, we were all looking at the at the GM view that uh, that basically uh, you you build an automated highway systems. And in fact, that's what they were called, automated highway systems. Um, but the the, the, the fundamental, certainly in the 90s, the, the thing that, that that became quite obvious was that uh, New Jersey DOT wasn't gonna build an automated highway unless GM built automated cars and GM wasn't gonna build automated cars until New Jersey DOT built an automated highway. And so, you know, uh, the egg coming before the, the chicken and all that stuff just never ne- never um, had the opportunity. And the, the big light bulb that I think came into, At least uh, some people's minds and with the DARPA challenges was oh my goodness uh maybe we don't need an automated road we don't need this sort of uh, central government control of what the heck is going on this freedom that we've had with the car might even might even be able to to go forward and and uh and in fact all we need to do is put the intelligence in a car and have it go, and we don't have to build the roads. In fact, we won't ask New Jersey DOT for anything. And when they say, hey, what do you need? We're gonna say, we don't need anything. Uh, maybe a little paint, uh, because that's what we need anyway. Hey, how about paint? You guys forgot about paint. You know, people need paint, um, uh, but uh, not ask for you know, we're
2: at a, I think we're at a point where even doing that is being called into question.
1: It is being hauled in the question because, of course, this is difficult because, of course, putting enough intelligence in the vehicle is the is the big question?
2: No, no, I mean, I mean, the government being able to maintain the roadmark. Oh
1: yeah, well, yeah, that <laughs> that that's that's of course. I mean, and 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 of course, um, their ego is so big. I mean, we do more than paint; we build, yeah. you know, double decker, triple decker, who knows what did it do? Da da da's, you know. Don't talk to us about paint, uh, but yeah. unfortunately, the darn it, the damn probably to me the biggest innovation biggest innovations were those rumble sticks that they put on the side of the road to keep us from going off the road because that's available to everybody at i don't know if anybody's gone there and said how many lives those things have saved because because you know that that's the lowest technology you could think of but anyway that's a whole other other aspect of this but but, but you know that that's that's in a sense the opportunity the opportunity is to is is to, uh, is to provide the mobility uh, without, without the chauffeur. And the chauffeur, as long as we're doing it for ourselves, we, we write it off, as free. Uh, but if we have to pay for it uh, then, and we don't have anybody to pass it off to our bosses or whatever, or we aren't rich enough, then all of a sudden it's a real challenge. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, of course, for those who are too young, too old, too poor, too whatever, they don't even have an opportunity. And, and so, you know, having mobility provided for them at a very low cost, uh, I guess, has been the, the panacea for this because, hey, if you, if you could create it uh, one time, uh, the replication costs are essentially zero. Cost zero to replicate software, and, and and you know buy enough lidars, and they're free too. So uh, um, uh, you know that that's which is the fundamental technology push of, of everybody. You know is to, mm-hmm. is to have that kind of scalability in these things, and, and the issue is is how in the heck do we get there? And, and to me, your, your interest in cities. What happens to cities? Do people really want to live in towers? Those nineteen thirty-nine towers that they had between all those interchanges and so on in the in the GM show—is that really where people want? to? What are your thoughts on that? Not to, because that's going to drive it, isn't it? If 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 or drive it, uh, motivate it. Let's put it that way. As
2: opposed to, drive it.
1: what what are your thoughts on that?
2: I mean, you know, I think. Right now, we're in a very strange period where
1: we bring a lot of
2: risks with them. Um, The U.S. is also a particularly weird situation. So, you know, looking globally, I think the outlook for cities to continue on their growth path is um, through and beyond COVID-19 is looking pretty good. Um, You know, that kind of settlement pattern, creates a lot of access, which is what people want at the end of the day. They want access to employment, they want access to education, healthcare.
1: Yeah, but but how is that access? By walking or by by uh, automated uh, uh, subway trains between you know big points?
2: I mean I, honestly, what, what I is
1: that access? I
2: don't think they care. I mean it's in you know you their, think
1: people living in in, in, Sha- yeah. in Shanghai and people who want to live in Shanghai really I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> 20 million people have decided yes. I mean, yes. And so I think, you know, there's a, there's a diverse set of ways of, of building cities and a lot of different solutions to that problem of providing access, but density is definitely part of the equation. I think automated forms of mobility can get woven into that in different ways. Um, that's why, you know, I, I In the book, tried to take a look at a variety of vehicle types and really make the point that what this is going to do is make all all the kinds of vehicles that we use to get around cities better um, Including automobiles. Um, I think David King, a friend of mine in Arizona State has made this point, you know, really well. That Yes, um, automation could make transit cheaper more efficient, more frequent. It's also going to make cars more appealing. Because your car is going to be able to, your automated car is going to be able to do all kinds of things that your car, you know, your human driven car can't do. Like, it'll be able to take itself to the gas station, take itself to satellite parking, take, you know, take itself to the dry cleaner to pick up, uh, you know. Um, I have been running a mental exercise during the lockdown, thinking of all the things that I would have used a fully self-driving car for so that I didn't have to leave the house. And it's a pretty long list. Um, so I think, you know, So what do
1: you think it requires the car to be able to do, to do that? Pardon me? What do you think it takes, uh, the car to be able to do, to go to the dry cleaners?
2: Like in terms of like automation levels or,
1: Or your care and feeding of it or how well you, uh, what, what, what does, what does it require of you? nothing? Or does it require some form of supervision, some form of liability, some form of responsibility, some form of I don't know what what does it or is it just carefully just goes down? We've
0: we've talked about that before, Anthony, in in that uh, if you have a vehicle like that, who's responsible if there is a mishap of some sort? Are you responsible because you sent it out? Or is the manufacturer responsible, the legal liability?
1: Or isn't I mean, it, is that a mood issue?
2: I mean, I would just assume it's going to be me. Um, I can't, I can't, I can't understand any situation where manufacturers would want to shift the status quo to take on more liability.
1: Right. Unless I, I think they that's
2: true. charge more for that service, and all of the like, all of the regulation and law is based around the vehicle owner bearing that responsibility. I mean, there's going to be product liability. So I'm I'm not an expert on this. So yeah, no, no, I'm 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 just, just, uh, you know, none of us
1: are experts on that. I don't know that anybody's an expert, I guess. My my assumption is
2: that nothing is going to change from the status. Um,
1: I mean, one of the things that surprised me and the thing that I was reading this morning, unfortunately, I bring that, you know, that uh, Penn State is asking students to come back on campus to sign this thing that, That says uh, if they get sick, uh, the university is not responsible. Uh, They're taking on that responsibility, and apparently, a bunch of students are are saying, "Oh no, we're not going to sign that." Uh, My goodness, Uh, we're not going to take the responsibility for this sucker. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So,
2: so, Sometimes I look at those kinds of documents, and I just say, "This is completely meaningless," because this is never going to hold up in court. Of course, you're responsible, right? Like, I'm paying, you know, like, of course, they're going to sign, they're going to make people sign those waivers because some attorney said, hey, it wouldn't hurt to have them sign these waivers. It might help us, but like, that that's gonna really shift the responsibility? I mean, who knows?
1: So so, what does that imply then for a, a driverless car that well, so, GM right. sold me? Uh, they can't say, hey, you know, the thing crashed when it was picking up my, my laundry. And of course, I didn't maintain it in the last whatever months. And, and GM's gonna say, uh, is GM gonna now be 10 times as many lawyers trying to protect themselves against that stuff or does that end up killing it. Or is that just does that not. Is that not. What do you think
2: Well, so where it starts to get complicated is whether automation um, Becomes a tool for them to start changing what they sell. So rather than selling me a vehicle. um, And then walking away. Yeah. And, and, you know, GM in particular has never really made the leap of, of like you know onstar ought to be gm no that's right? I, I agree with 100, you 100
1: 100 they were there before yeah. before elon was even born i or maybe no i don't know that's you pay,
2: i don't know two thousand dollars a year for OnStar. yeah and it be your phone service like onstar should be your whole digital life right R should come as a freebie yeah, <laughs> They should learn something from the phone companies, but um, they haven't made that leap, right? So if at some point they do make that leap, that'll totally change everything, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think the question is, is it going to be them or is it going to be someone like Tesla? Tesla has definitely made feints in that direction, that yeah. that's where they see their model going. On the other hand, they're also starting to be somewhat successful as a conventional car manufacturer. So who knows, you know. Um, but it's, it's going to be that shift from products to services that'll drive, that'll drive those big substantial changes. I don't think it's going to look like Zipcar. Um, it's going to be something, especially now, that's much more oriented around private transportation. I think the whole, and I, as much as I believe in shared mobility, um, and I think that it's a it's a good thing for cities to promote. I think it's a limited opportunity. I think the market has shown. Um, you know, one one of the things I wrote about in the book was like all of the models that have been done of, of shared shared mm. you know auto like shared taxi mobility that produce these astounding benefits fleet reduction sizes. Yeah, I,
1: I've run those things. You know, yeah. so go ahead. <laughs> the amount
2: of shared, would require like the equivalent of like a mobility Stasi on every corner to like force people into cars to get the 90% sharing. And you don't see that in, in Oakland or Cambridge or, or Brooklyn or anywhere where sharing is like really, really popular on these services. There you get maybe 30 to 40%. So th- there's nowhere in the world where we've seen the service adopted at the levels to produce the outcome. So I think, you know, that is a part of the solution, but watching what these companies do, um, you know, there's always gonna be a certain market that's just like private owned private vehicles, right? That are yeah, super capable, great. super luxury. They're gonna have all this stuff.
1: Yeah, for all the people who can, who can afford it's, right?
2: It's, it's like, I, I think like GM is a real bellwether. Like does OnStar start to become more of a service, uh, a mobility service? as opposed to a telematics service for a vehicle, um, you know, that, that's, that's the game changer there. Um, but it's never gonna be, uh, you know, share this minivan with another family, uh, you know, part of the day, it may be like, you know, month by month or week by week or whatever, but it, it'll be something that's more like a cheaper, more flexible private car. Um, than, like, a Zip car, you know?
1: Does that, then, constrain density? I mean, does that really, does that end up really, um, that doesn't work in Shanghai's, of this world, does it? I mean...
2: Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think, well, the, the difference, too, is, um, the difference is places where you have policy uh, dampening vehicle ownership, which, in the U.S., we don't have any. Right, right, right. Of course is, not. Is everything is you know, um, China has pretty serious dampeners on on vehicle ownership, and and it's sort of capped, right? So they, they've tried to calibrate those to match the carrying capacity of the road network and and the parking. So um, you know, I think I think they're kind of locked in um Europe has has its own constraints. I, I think in the US, you know, like I, I struggled a lot with this in the book. Um not just because yeah. you know, the US is such a it's such a unique beast in terms of auto dependence, sprawl, decentralization, but also because it's just my own sort of um ambivalence about it. Like I grew up in the countryside and um you know, I, I wrote about this at the end and sort of the afterwards. Like, yeah, it's, it's, what if I could live three hours from Manhattan and press a button and go to work, you know? Like, the fact that I, um, you know, am considering this tells me that tens of millions of people in this country are going to really want that. Um, it's a very, very alluring lifestyle. It's not quite a suburban lifestyle dream. Not, but now that you
1: have Zoom. Now that you have Zoom, and since we're on Zoom, do <laughs> you want to go to Manhattan?
2: I love Manhattan. I was just there yesterday for the first time. How was it? It's Fantastic. There's
1: people out. I even saw tourists. Yeah, I couldn't yeah but not it. But, <laughs> but, yeah, but, you hotels know, are cheap. Is the, is the Met <laughs> open? The, Met, the, Met, the Broadway's not open. The, the yeah. restaurants aren't open. And uh, Anthony? But, but, the, but, the, <laughs> but the subway's clean. The subway is uh, uh, one, no, one of the things thoughts. that
0: you wrote about Anthony in in the book that's interesting is that uh you went back and and got into coding again something you yeah. hadn't done for for many years to bring that experience into the book tell tell me about the your thoughts yeah. and, and yeah. reasoning behind yeah. that yeah. Yeah. uh i mean you know it was it
2: was i like to um i like to learn by doing um One of the things that I have um, found is a good way to learn about technology and and cities, how they interact, is, is really understanding how the plumbing works. You know, when I was writing my dissertation, I learned so much about IP networks and fiber optic networks and the way that there's little hints about the geography of ip networks in the naming schemes for routers and i used that to make maps of ip networks and to try to understand what the emerging hubs of the internet were 20 years ago and turned out they were in some of the cities where you know the british had built telegraph networks 150 years ago go figure right the new roads follow the old roads um, and so you know i wanted to do that with this i wanted to really see machine learning at work. Um, I wanted to, um, you know, understand uh, how different APIs plug together and what what the plumbing looks like. um, How people, um, you know, and and what I ended up writing about, really, was also the style of work. Um, If you're interested in this stuff, there's a a much longer fantastic book by Clive Thompson that came out a few months ago called Coders, which really gets deep into this. but it was it was the whole style of collaboration uh, around coding uh, these days, um, and you know this is an intensely um, uh, collaborative, large-scale process, transparent, um, often very open, um, and often very problem-driven, um, and um, just the language of tools like GitHub that people use for talking about the very specific ways in which you change something, and you rebase it, or you fork it, or you branch it. Um, and, it and it seemed to me that was also like a really interesting way of thinking about forecasting and talking about the future, that um, there's all these possibilities for how we tell the story and how we build these forecasts collaboratively. So. I was trying to use that in many ways as a metaphor for how we ought to think about forecasting uh, and designing the future of automated mobility. That we shouldn't just take it as like this quite um, quite uh, anachronistic gospel, you know, from 1939 or even earlier about what the what the technology looks like. You know, it's a perfected car. Um, and that we should think about it as a much more malleable, varied thing that we can write and rewrite and write and rewrite, and we can engage lots of different people in doing it. And we can try lots of different versions of it, uh, and see what works. Um, and so, you know, you look at all the vehicle types and all the services and all the places that there are different places in cities, controlled environments, environments with pedestrians, uh, you know, environments that have pavement markings. Um, you know, in Canada, Canada, every place that Canada is funding academic work or industry work on autonomous, fully autonomous vehicles, they're also funding work on connected vehicle infrastructure because Canada is covered in snow half the year. And so Canada won't have this unless they build the automated highways to an extent. And they know that. So, you know, there's also that piece to weave into it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's just, it's fascinating to me, um, just like how many narratives there are and how much more interesting this gets when you, when you sort of look at, at all, all the potential for the narrative around automated vehicles to just kind of blossom and explode from, you know, what we've had for the last decade, which has just been really, really, really narrow, um, and, and, Yeah, I think in
0: many ways missing the big opportunities. Very interesting, you know, and I assume that when you're writing a a book like this, that you invest so much time and effort into it, that you're hoping that uh, two weeks afterwards, some company doesn't come out and make some blockbuster announcement (laughs) that makes it all outdated. I mean, there's always that danger when you're writing about technology.
2: Yeah, I mean, I try not to like make too many predictions. Um, what I try to write about is like lenses, you know, like this is this is these are the the glasses that I put on when I look at the future. Or these are the themes. So you know the book's organized around what I call three big stories about the future. Specialization, which is, you know, the, the sort of variety of vehicle services and even driving behaviors. Materialization, which is about freight and e-commerce, and then financialization, which is looking at, I think, some of the really potentially scary outcomes when you hook an automated mobility system up to a largely automated global financial system and uh, potentially repeat some of the really bad outcomes that we had, say, in energy or in um, food commodity markets uh, or in the, the mortgage market when um, we had similar um Kinds of linkages get created there. Um, And you know that there's actually a historic precedent for some really bad outcomes. Uh, Like when when the electric streetcars came along, there are some real parallels between uh, Electric electrification of of streetcars and what's going on with automation. Um, And uh, the way that um, what they call traction monopolies got established in uh, a lot of cities where you basically had one company uh, which was in, often in cahoots with a corrupt local government controlling all of the surface transportation, all of the electricity and all the lighting in a city. Um, you know basically you know, not unlike uh, the kind of um, stranglehold that we worry about with some of the tech giants now really, you know, controlling our our modern life, all the utilities of our modern life. Um, And so, you know, I think those things aren't gonna change. I think 10 years from now, specialization will still be a great, it'll be a useful lens. Materialization, I think, will be useful. lens. Financialization, I'm hoping, is totally obsolete and not a problem at all. I hope we have a fully competitive, fair marketplace for automated mobility, and then I've been completely proven wrong on that one, but I suspect that I will not be. Um, but is, isn't is the
1: objective of capitalism to create a monopoly? I mean, you know, every, every capitalist knows that uh, if they can get a um, uh, monopoly, 80% of the market share, uh, look at our tech giants now, I mean whatever, we're,
2: we're <sighs> sure. I mean, it's the objective. It's not a desirable outcome.
1: I, I, I un- understand. That. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I mean, from them, it's a desired outcome for the for the public at large, it may not be the desired outcome.
2: I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, like, that was the sort of shakiest ground for me as a as a researcher and writer. I, I did my best to try to lay out <clears throat> my concerns and my questions and like what I saw pointing towards that. Um, and then to you know, provide some of the historical breadcrumbs to give people a sense of why I thought it was important. Uh, I think there's a lot more to do there. There's, there's a bit of unfinished work. Um, but like, You know what, what, like what, what really concerned me was seeing what, what SoftBank is doing. Um, I mean, for all intents and purposes, SoftBank is channeling the proceeds from the liquidation of, of the Saudi oil empire into the construction of a global automated mobility empire um, that, you know, if you look at how um, they have dealt with national uh, antitrust regulators, say, in Singapore, for instance, uh, where you would expect an effective response, um, there, you know, was not an effective response because they're too big. and so, what SoftBank was able to do is, when they bought Grab in Singapore, Vietnam, and uh, Philippines, they pulled Uber out of those markets. And all the antitrust regulators said, "This is terrible." You know, the Philippines and, and uh, Vietnam, they got off pretty easily. Singapore levied like one of the largest antitrust fines they've ever levied. It was like twenty million dollars. It it's like a half a day's operating profits or something. <laughs> And yes, I mean if Singapore can't control them, I mean who can, right? So, um, and they've been systematically doing this now. So I look at that and I think that's that's probably a bad thing. And um, you know, comparing it to to um, so that's that's one sort of, of one sort of data point. I mean, another data point is to look at look at Waymo and you know, are they. Sufficiently far ahead now, as we enter this like trough of disillusionment around around self-driving, that like nobody can catch them. Um, that's a that's a you know a, a realistic but, question. But,
1: but the, the the problem I think for Waymo is that they they have their part of the market is still at zero. I mean, you know, they 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 moved six people around uh, Chandler. Big deal. I mean, this is uh, you know and the reason why SoftBank's in this is is global mobility market is is an enormous market, and if you have a but but you have to get in there and actually provide mobility, and so far nobody's providing any mobility. They have you know a bunch of things they can put up on shelves. They have you know some code that they've written. But nobody's out there actually uh, delivering it, you know. In in, in the in the uh, purchase world, Amazon is actually delivering, you know, things that you buy online. They're actually doing that. Uh, the uh, so um, um, you know they're we're we're, we're Still at an enormous beginning, we're still maybe at at, at nineteen thirty nine on this, uh, you know. For all for all we know, I mean. Uh, yes, I
2: mean that. Like Amazon's another great example. I mean, an Amazon last mile monopoly. Like, what if nobody else can move? move oh. Freight, move freight. You know, as cheap and as fast as Amazon. That's probably not a good outcome. Yeah, it's probably not a good
1: outcome, but they're out there trying to do it. Why else? I mean, they're out there buying Zooks. Of course, it's it's cheap, whatever. Get the people. They have to, if they can control that, then, oh, my goodness. And nobody, then Walmart's not going to be able to compete with them. And, and Walmart's- Yes, I, I mean, I,
2: I think of it, that part of the book is really sending up a flare to kind yes. of ask, like, well, who, yes. who cares about this? Um, and is this something we need to keep an eye on? I don't know if I would do anything about it yet. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not of the mind that like we've got to stop this. Yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But uh, and then and then it also raises some really interesting questions about you know like congestion pricing, which looks like a great uh, tool on the surface. You know, does that become like a gateway drug to this kind of running out of control, um, where we're, we're basically you know embracing a um, a, a market-based mechanism for allocating all this stuff uh, that would really potentially become a, a slippery slope. Um, to yeah, that, that's putting a slippery- all, of those,
0: all of those assets up for sale. Um, very, very interesting insights, Anthony. So, uh, Ghost Ghost mm-hmm. Road is the name of the book. We'll continue yep. in just a moment, but this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs Smart Transportation and Technology ETF symbol MOTO. To get more info, head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, it's a good idea to read the white paper. It's titled The Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab there. Lots of great information to help you make informed investing decisions. ETFs, as you may know, are a smart way to uh, spread risk with investments and focus on a particular category. And the site, again, is MOTOETF.com. Getting to some of the headlines in the latest smart driving car newsletter, both Lyft and Uber are now saying they would shut down in California if the state forces them to classify drivers as employees. This, this battle has been going on for a while. It seems to be reaching ahead.
1: Yeah, and shut down temporarily until they can somehow get the courts to maybe um, have uh, the state back off, uh, um, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, those uh, those folks um, probably need a living wage and need some support, and so unfortunately, the driver doesn't come for free in in Uber, Lyft, and of course, that's uh, that's why I continue to work on the driverless pieces until until you can pull the driver out the out of there. You can't provide that mobility at uh, an affordable way, and um, but unless once we do the, do, do the, the technology, uh, California decides to say, oh no, the driverless technology is now is now needs to be called an employee. And um, although that's tongue in cheek, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess it won't ask for too much health care coverage if it's well, of it. course I during the pandemic
0: that. revenues that they've both reported, Lyft and Uber, have kind of fallen off a cliff here.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not being used. People people aren't going places. Uh, there, you know, uh, mobility's down. So, yeah.
2: I mean, Uber has shifted quite markedly towards delivery of food, which is Uber eats. Yeah. Much lower margin.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then one wonders whether or not uh, you know. The, the, sure, you can do that. The, the, to me, the to me the real value is providing mobility for people who need to go from A to B uh, when they want to go there and to do that affordably, and that, that's the improvement in the quality of life of those people. And and uh, somehow we still have to have to do some of that. Although Anthony, I'd like to get back to one more of your little points if I could take another minute of your time. Since you grew up in a rural area. Okay, I'm. I'm really wondering. Do you want to live in Shanghai? Uh, not Shanghai, but a Shanghai. I mean, do you want to live in a town, tar- it, it, it really is that the right place for people to live.
2: <laughs> you know, I think people have a variety of preferences, and um, there are a lot of reasons why people find those kinds of dwellings appealing um again they want access to things that are in central cities um you know is it, is
1: it only the people that also have a place out in the hamptons or at uh, or or on the vineyard and um you know uh, what about the real folks
2: I mean, yeah i think people go through um, changes at different points in their life too where they have different housing needs so um but yeah i mean there's there's also um energy consumption considerations that um you know it tends to in general be more energy efficient to pack more people you know into less land and a whole bunch of things so i think there's some some certainly some um social interest in in having that but um yeah i mean i don't, I don't think it's fair. i don't I'm not like Ed glazer, you know, who lives in the suburbs, but says that everybody else has to live in a high rise. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Good. I'm I'm glad you're not. uh, uh, I live in a row house in Jersey City. So I sort of split the difference. Yeah, yeah.
1: But, uh, you know, down here in the Princeton bubble, you know, I mean, what the, I I have no perspective, so I'm just uh, 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 what the hell.
0: And you got you know? the town to yourself with the students not coming back. Either, oh right? yeah. Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> Although we, did, as we mentioned before, we do have two of our former graduates who went and picked up a couple of hotels one in Arkansas and one in Hawaii and are going to create their own sort of Princeton bubbles out there and, um, uh, and uh, invite students to come there to, uh, uh, to learn remotely on Zoom, I, <laughs> whatever. A um,
0: couple of heard? other quick things yeah. to mention here, Alan. Yeah, 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 American yeah, yeah. University's Celica Talbot said in a virtual Axios event this week that a lack of federal policy has hampered the autonomous car industry's Transparency with communities where the vehicles are tested.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know Salika has a point there, and and, and that, that's correct. I, you know, the question is 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 why do we want the uh, you know federal policy in here? Is that in case something goes bad, we can point to them. They let us do it or something. It, it, it'd be nice to have some leadership. It'd be nice for 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 someone to. To be providing some overview on this, uh, so that especially with with the safety issue, which is all perception, um, one can have a feeling as to whether whether or when this stuff becomes safe enough for for public consumption. And right now, it's. Um, Everybody's actually competing on safety, which we've discussed many times on this, that we should be cooperating on safety. We shouldn't be competing on safety. Safety helps everybody. If this isn't safe, we don't even talk about it. Uh, 1939 GM uh, everybody implied that, that it was safe nobody was going to be out there you didn't see any crashes going on in those little things that were going zipping back and forth uh, you know it's always been assumed that it it's as safe in the in the 1950s and 60s videos you know there's one car out there and the, uh, you know the safety has always been implied it's been implied by the auto industry it wasn't until you know Ralph Nader came up and, and even began the question that, that anybody even began to even think that, uh, why? Because, hey, if a product is perceived unsafe, uh, nobody buys it, OK? It's you
0: know, dead. That, another thing you highlighted in, in, in the, think, go, yeah, go, go ahead, go, Anthony.
2: Mark. I think one area where I'd like to see some some federal vision and leadership um, in the next six to 12 months is, is assuming we make a big push into uh, manufacturing, revitalizing manufacturing, um, assuming that it has some kind of green sustainable dimension to it, a a national vision around um, like motor freight transportation and the role of automation there, um, which is partly about pushing the technology in more aggressively along with electrification, kind of modernization of the truck fleet and and the logistics network, but also uh, along with that, a plan for transitioning the workforce, um, because you know, that's one of the biggest, I think, anxiety points around automation right now. Um, but like, as like a national project, a modern, clean, safe, efficient trucking fleet would really you know, be a huge boost, I think, and especially if we could do it without throwing you know, tens of millions of, of um, fairly low skilled people out of work with no prospect of, of future employment that would be uh, I think the right way to go and then you know um, there's definitely um, some good work going on in laying some of the planks of that vision, but I think somebody in government has to really pull it together well i,
1: I agree with you i I tend to look at it a little bit um, more incrementally i think I think that uh, that all this technology needs to improve um, improve the work environment for a trucker. I mean, you know, the fact that a professional driver has to sit there, I've said this many times, sit there behind a wheel for 10 hours a day, making sure that he or she is fully engaged, otherwise they die. I mean, the, the, the this technology that goes out and supports them and, and, and really reduces the stress of the job and makes it much more, much more, not necessarily enjoyable, but livable, a way to, to really support your family without totally stressing you out, and who knows what you do to combat that. We won't even go into even you know thinking about it. And maybe, okay, give you an extra hour of service, give you an extra two hours of service so you can better feed your family, so you can be more productive. Do that, get that really, that that to me is within our grasp today and has ROI benefits to the to, to the CEO of each one of these trucking companies because you know these truckers are they're, they're the part of their families. They they don't want to see them crashing. They don't want to uh, you know pull out of their pocket and, an average of more than ten thousand bucks a year for each truck for the self insurance that they put out there. You know do that. Once we do that really well, then we can talk about expanding it and and having the person do more productive things and sit there and keep the damn truck between two white lines, which is really tough, which requires a professional. The technology could really help there. That's kind of the way I've looked at that sucker.
0: Before we wrap up, Alan uh, and Anthony, we we always have to... Give our folks a a Tesla update, another interesting week for Elon Musk, announcing a five-for-one stock split, the the share price, of course, going crazy again. And he's announced uh, Starlink is manufacturing something like 120 new satellites designed for his new internet service per month. So, I
1: mean, you know, I mean, is he really going to go out there and provide high speed Internet to all of our students that are not scattered around the whatever and and really the, the you yeah, know, we might do a certain amount of teaching over over Zoom. But boy, if you don't have good Internet, good coverage and Zoom goes in and out and whatever, I mean, I, how much pain and learning can can a student uh, endure?
0: Well, I'd, I'd um, just so like if to see he, another is competitor. Really,
1: is he really broadband?
0: That's all. Oh
1: <laughs> uh, well, I don't know, but a bunch of other people are putting up a bunch of satellites. Yeah. So I think I think Jeff right. has his Very own convenient. idea. Probably Bill has his own idea. <laughs> Whatever da, da, do they do? were and even the as astronomers are now saying, "Oh right. my, my goodness, we're going to have so many satellites out there, we aren't going to be able to see." see any stars anymore. I I don't know. On that note, Alan,
0: Uh, we want to thank thank Anthony Townsend for taking the time with us. Great having you here, Anthony. The name of the book, again, is Ghost Road Beyond the Driverless Car. And the website for more info is starcitygroup.us. Thank you, Anthony.
2: Thanks for the conversation.
1: uh, Thanks a lot. Uh, That was a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: And we want to remind you to check out the replay, video, or audio of last month's Driving the Debate on Amazon Zooks and beyond. The site is drivingthedebate.com, and keep an eye out for more to come. Thanks to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO, and more information is available at MOTOETF.com. You can find us at SmartDrivingCar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Ask your smart speaker to play us. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching, and please stay safe. Have a great day, folks.